I see storytelling and booktelling as a three-dimensional web where every every place where two strings connect in this web, sort of like a, 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 a web ball with, with threads running through it, every place that two strings interconnect is a point that has the potential to spawn that many more strings coming off of it. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers, and this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, you were telling me an interesting story uh, when you came back from New York uh, about something that had happened in a restaurant. Let's let's talk about that because I, I find it interesting. It, it tells us, it helps to explain you as a character. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, oh, and wait a minute. Before we get to that, this week's show is about middles. Uh, we're, we're in the middle in the middle of a three-part series on story structure with beginning, which was last week, middle, which is this week, and endings, which will be next week. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> One of the things about me is that I'm really fascinated with where people who people are, like where they've come from. And one of the most obvious things that sets people apart from whatever's around them, aside from maybe dress style or unique markings or something like that, is their accents. And I'm fascinated by accents. And I always want to ask people where they're from. But that's a difficult question to ask because in this big melting pot of ours, that question can so easily be taken the wrong way as to infer you're not from here, you're not one of us. And I don't want to be that person who's just a bumbling, you know, ugly American, so to speak, who just assumes that because somebody is different, they're they're not part of us, right? So I, I've always, I guess my, my way of doing this now is I say, I'll tell somebody, I love your accent. Where did it come from? Rather than saying, where are you from? Because in many cases, as is the case here, that person is from here. They've been here for 30 years. They just carry an accent from somewhere else. So we're in this restaurant and our server had an accent. And I said to her, well, you know, what I do. I love your accent. Where is it from? And she says, oh, it's from Poland. And I was like, really? And so that got us to talking. And, you know, you find a little bit about them and how, you know, she's been in the United States for 30 years and, um, you know, a little bit about why. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by the history of people. And then, uh, you know, there were a lot of authors in the, in the room and I was explaining to her, and this is not the first time um, she's dealt with Thriller Fest people. I recognized her from last year too. And, and I said, um, and it, it jogged my brain. And I was like, you know, I, I have books in Polish. They're, they're sitting in my house and they're just sitting there. If you want, I'd be happy to send them to you just so you could have something in your, in your home language. And, um, she was like, Oh my God, yes, that would be amazing. And then I start to panic going, Oh my God, do I actually have any Polish books left? (laughs) (laughs) So I, I get home and thankfully I do. And, and I, and I just got those sent off today and, and that jogged my brain again in a different direction, which is I have 
still, and I, I one time, it was several years ago, I, I put out a call to my newsletter uh, audiences before we had podcasts, before anything else, and I said, you know, I've got all these foreign language books sitting in my house. They're just sitting here wasting time. These are the language, sorry, not wasting time, wasting space, but also, you know, going to use, you going to no use. And I was like, you know, if you want one, let me know and tell me where to send it and I'll send it to you. So since that time, I've had a lot more copies come in and I have a couple boxes of books just taking up space in my den. And so I, I wanted to put this out there to my podcast listeners um, as a special thank you for sticking with us. If you're interested in foreign language editions, let me know. Um, contact me by email, contact at taylorstevensbooks.com. I, I can't guarantee I have anything in the language that you would be interested in. I still have a lot of Czech. I think I've got some Finnish, some, uh, I'm out of Polish books now. Uh, I've got maybe one or two French or Italian, a few German Lots of Chinese, although I don't know if it, they're the old characters or the new characters, and that makes a difference to some people. Um, maybe, maybe, possibly have something in Japanese. I don't know. Um, so I, I have to go make a list and figure out what I've got, but I don't want to do that unless I know I have interest. So if you're interested in a foreign language edition, even if it's not for yourself, if you have a neighbor, if you have someone you know who's elderly and would love to have a a language that would remind them of home. If you um, know somebody who can't afford books and, or who's maybe missing being able to read in their native language, let me know and I will send you a book, figure out what we've got and find a way to get it to you. I can't read any foreign languages, so let's get that out of the way right now. But I would love <laughs> to see the covers of these books. Could you take, like, put a few of them on a table and just like take a picture and, and stick it up on in, in the fan club, in the Taylor Stevens yeah. fan club. Yeah, I could do that. That'd be that kind would of be fun. fun. Yeah. I have a copy of almost every language I, I kept for myself. There's a few, a few that I've never gotten. I've never gotten one of the Russian copies. And uh, I don't know that I've ever gotten the Portuguese copy uh the Brazilian Portuguese copy. So there's a few out there. There's strays that I've never gotten, but it would be fun to take a few pictures. All right, are you ready to talk about middles? I'm just as nervous as last week. I still have no idea what we're doing, but yes. Yes, but this is fun. All right, so last week we talked about beginnings, and we talked – we used specifically your book, The Catch, and a scene where the ship that Monroe had chosen to get on – was sailing away, and she'd passed the point of no return. She was fully committed to this adventure, essentially. And so that put us into the middle. Now, you you don't write to a specific story structure, but we're using that as an example because it fit the perfect example of, of a beginning. So now we're going to talk about middles. And middles, depending on who you read and who you study in terms of writing teachers can take up 50% of the book. It can take up 80% of the book. We talked last week how sometimes beginnings are really short. In, in The Doll, for example, your beginning was really short, and it got right into the middle pretty quickly. So the middle, uh, which for m many of us who write can become the muddle, uh, is, is a particular challenge 
because unlike the beginning where there are all these specific things that you're doing, you're identifying your characters, you're, you're creating a relationship between the reader and the character, um, you're identifying uh, not only an initial problem but the problem for the book. There's been an inciting incident somewhere. There's a lot that happens there. And then we get into the middle where stuff just happens, and it, it, it's easy to – to kind of get lost. And, and so many books, there's a really good beginning and there's a really good end. And the middle just kind of, you know, people use the term saggy middle, but I mean, they just kind of suck. So how do we avoid that? Uh, <laughs> as someone who's been accused of having meandering stories, um, <laughs> I might not be the best person to ask that question. I think... It, it a lot of it goes back to what we've talked about before. Everything has to have every scene has to have its purpose, and you as an author have to know what you're trying to do with it. What are you actually trying to convey? What are, and I and I I do that to myself when I. I I tend to get, if I'm stuck in a scene, I go back and I ask myself, what is this, what is the purpose of this scene? What is, what am I trying to actually communicate? Is it a piece of information? Is it a personality thing? Is it setting up conflict for elsewhere in the story? Are we, um, in, in the, the Monroe chapter I'm working now that I'm hoping to be able to update to Patreon before another month has passed, <laughs> um, I'm I'm struggling because there's so much I don't want to say backstory as just things readers need to understand before we get into the action. And so in each of those scenes I'm like what is the the most critical thing that needs to be conveyed through through this movement? And the further you get into the muddle or the mess, or as I often call it, and excuse my bad language here, the shits and the sucks, um, <laughs> because that's all it is. This is shit and this sucks. Um, it, 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 it goes down to um, keeping the essence of the story, the essence of the characters. What is this really about? What? I may be throwing in all kinds of red herrings. I may be having extra, you know, action scenes as the as the um, the characters are running through this manufactured author manufactured labyrinth to get to the end. But there's got to be a point to it. Why? Why are they doing this? And if it's just manufactured for the sake of creating action, or the sake of creating conflict, or the sake of fulfilling a certain genre expectation, it's going to really feel like a soggy middle. But if every scene is driving us towards something, even if it was a dead end, but it felt genuine and the author's um, choices felt organic to the moment, then it's not going to feel soggy. And I go back to The Informationist as a way to... Um, to, to explain this, in that that story does somewhat meander. And the reason is, the reader might have their reason for going into that book, but I wrote it to teach them 
to show them, to take their hands to this, show them this part of the world that they never would have seen before. So my, I, I was basically taking them on a walking tour of Equatorial Guinea through the form of nonstop action. So when it, when characters went to a certain place or did a certain thing, it had to be organic to the story. It had to make sense to the story. But they went to that specific place because I wanted to take them there. So the places where maybe it felt meandering to readers was because they didn't want to see those places. They just wanted to get to the point already. But part of living in Africa, sometimes it takes a while to get to the point because things take time and it's sent off on goose chases and it was very authentic to the situation. So even in a story that some people might consider meandering, there was a purpose to everything, a reason for why it was there. And I think that's sort of what helps to keep the middle from just going off into a bazillion tangents that have nothing to do with the end. When you're writing middles, I, my reading is, is so genre-specific that I, I don't there, – there's just lots of things that I, I read very little of. So almost all of my reading is, is, is mysteries and thrillers or suspense novels, things like that. So there is always this trying to solve the problem thing that's going on in the middle. Yeah. And so you think, okay, if I do this, it's going to solve the problem. It's going to, I, I will identify the killer. I will catch the bad guy. I will stop the nuclear bomb from going off, whatever it may be. If I do this, it will solve the problem. And inevitably, if it's not the ending, not only will it not solve the problem, it makes the situation worse. Is that something that you think about when you're writing? Yeah, that question. How can it? How can this be? How can this get worse? What? What's the something bad that can happen that will totally stand? Like, if here's a direct line from what the um, the character wants and needs to being able to get it, how many roadblocks can I throw up in their way that they'll have to overcome before it starts to feel like um, one of those stories that just can we get to the end already? You know, I don't want it to yeah, be like that. Yeah. Like, oh, come on, not again, you know? Mm-hmm. And you definitely don't want your characters making stupid decisions in order to facilitate those roadblocks. You know, we, we've joked about it before, you know, single woman living alone hears a noise and the first thing she does is go investigate it. Really? <laughs> um, or wanders off alone into the dark woods. Yeah, come on. Like, for me... The, the muddle, the, the shit, is just, it's because there's, by the time you've gotten into that, there are so many pieces in play. And I don't want to over-explain things or take a cheap shot where somebody just, you know, the bad guy just tells somebody what their plan was or whatever. And, you know, sometimes you're not in a position where you can show that that character's point of view. And so the muddle is trying to find a way to get all these moving pieces into a proper orbit where they're moving in sync and where the reader has the information that they need for it to to make sense. And that's really hard 
it it requires a lot of brain processing power on my part to figure out how to convey something in a way that doesn't give away the end, mm -hmm. that isn't cheesy, that doesn't rob the story of its tension, and that's why we call it the muddle. I, a class that I took once made it simple for me. In, in a, it was simple for me to understand the terminology the instructor used, and he used the terms try-fail cycles in the middle. And, and I, that really works well for me as, as, as a way of just kind of understanding it, where the, the protagonist is trying to solve the problem and he fails. And then he tries again and he fails. And he tries again and he fails. And he tries again and he fails. And inevitably things will get worse. And so that's a way for me of understanding the middle. And he, he, he simplified it even further. And I've, I get some pushback on this when I've, talk, when I've spoken to people about it before. But, so I'd like your opinion. Um, he, he said I mean, that's basically the difference between a short story and a novel is the number of try-fail cycles in the middle. Yeah, see, I don't, I disagree with that. Okay. Because I, there is so much more that that is as if the stories were entirely plot based. Every character you throw into the book, if you want to actually give them a depth of character, even if they don't have a point of view, every um, human interaction really with somebody who's more than just a passing face on the street increases the three-dimensional web that you're building that this story is structured within. So if all it is is try, fail, try, fail, it is essentially the equivalent of what I've talked about before as being one of my pet peeves with mm -hmm. Robert Ludlum's books, where he would set his characters up to achieve this challenge, like break into some facility. And then after all the effort and the scheming and the the way that he figured it out, he'd get to the other side and his people would be there on the inside waiting for him like some big shocker. And they're like, oh, so you passed the test. And it happened often enough in his books that I was just like, this is, I can't handle this anymore. Stop it. This is, this is annoying. It didn't happen in the Jason Bourne books, though, and those are the ones that I love the most. And so when you have this try-fail, try-fail, try-fail cycle, and that's the only thing that's differentiating between a short story and a novel, it's robbing, essentially robbing a full-length book of what actually makes it a full-length book, which is the intense exploration of character and human interaction and um, location settings and etc. You know, mm -hmm. um, my only short story that I've ever had published is The Vessel. It's a quarter length of a typical novel. And that that book moves so fast. It I could take that entire book as it is, as 25,000 words. I could extend it and make it a 100,000 word book by taking each scene or some of the scenes that are just truncated and shortened and to compressed for time and actually fleshing out characters and building conversations and, and drawing it into life. And I could take that story and turn it into a hundred thousand word book. And it's, it's the lack of all of those things that make it as just go, 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 go as it is. But it also doesn't have the same depth mm -hmm. as and and complexity of a full size novel. And it's funny as a reader, how often I'll be reading a book and I'll 
get a sense that that's exactly what the author did, that their story was actually a 25,000-word story, and they just stretched it because in the middle there are these just, you know, one slow story doesn't advance at all scene after another, and then they've filled up enough words and they can get to the ending and then there's a big rush and, and the ending is over. And typically I'll finish that book and just say, okay, that's enough of, of that author. I'm not going to, I'm yeah. not going to read him again. So I had this situation similar come up with um, this new book. You know, whenever I finish writing a story, I feel like I've gotten it as good as I can get it. Or I just simply don't want to work on it anymore. I'm like, I'll fill this in later. I send it to my agent and she goes over it. And, um, in this case, she has uh, an assistant now who's pretty awesome. And, you know, we got the book to where they were happy with it. The questions were answered, concerns were answered. And then her assistant said, but you know, this, this book moves so fast. What, couldn't there be some scenes in it where Things just get, you know, they slow down a bit and, um, you know, give us a chance to catch our breath. And I wrote my agent and I said, look, if you want me to do that, I can. But you're essentially asking me to spend two months filling in scenes that are that's busy work, that I'll have to find a way to make those scenes somehow feel organic to the rest of the story without creating all these ripple effects elsewhere, for what purpose? Like, is it actually going to make the book better to have an extra 10,000 words in it where they're just doing nonsense stuff that I have to create a reason for them to do this stuff that somehow makes sense? And she's like, yeah, skip it. Don't even bother. <laughs> so, so somehow that relates to what you were saying in that, you know, people can pad the books. It's the shortest book I've ever written. All, all of my books have come in uh, at well over 100,000 words. With The Doll, it came in at 140,000 words, and almost 40,000 words of those got cut out, which is why The Doll moves so fast. And in this case, I just didn't bother writing those extra 40,000 words to begin with, <laughs> save myself the trouble. <laughs> so it came in at 90,000 words, which to me feels like a really short book, but it's actually still pretty long by, you know, you, you get a lot of 70,000, 80,000 word um, thrillers or shorter thrillers. So mm -hmm. you, you can run into this thing in, in the muddle where you start adding stuff to puff up the book. But, you know, like I just I see storytelling and book telling as a three dimensional web where every every place where those where two strings connect in this web, sort of like a, 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 a web ball with with threads running through it. Every place that two two strings interconnect is a point that has the potential to spawn that many more strings coming off of it. And so as an author, your job is to keep snipping off those strings so that by the, the time this is finished, by the time you have that whole middle sorted out and you're ready to move on to the end, they all are somehow truly contained and pertain to the, the story you're trying to tell. Okay. All right. Um, have you heard the term midpoint reversal? No, because okay. I don't know anything. And I... I 
I don't know when the first time I heard that term was, probably a couple of years ago. But because I read so much, it was I think it was about 15 years ago, I began to notice that there was something that would happen in the books that I read um, around the middle that would turn the story. And I, you know, again, I did not know the term, but it, it got to the point where when I would get to it, I would look at the total number of pages and see how close it was to the exact middle. And okay. believe it or not, it's typically within like 2% of the middle almost all the time. And I don't think it's planned for. I think it just kind of works out that way. Or maybe it is planned for. I don't know. But and where did the term come from? I, I, it, the term may have been around for 100 years. I, I don't know. But I didn't start reading writing books until a few years ago. And I, it was not in one of the earlier books that I read. It was in one of the story structure books I've read. And I've read a lot because I have such difficulty with story, tru- story structure. But... I, I just I found that interesting that it was seemed to be organic to so many different books and then all of a sudden there was a term for it. So maybe it's something that's taught in school, maybe it's it's something that's taught to screenwriters or something. I, I expect it's similar in movies. Probably around half at the halfway point of the movie, something really awful happens. And I I'm watching this I, I'm watching this Amazon Prime series called Goliath. And the bad, the crap just keeps getting piled on this, on the protagonist for the story. And it's like, when is this going to reverse? I can't take it anymore. Yeah. See, I don't like that either. I won't, I I try not to do that to my readers. I like it when it, it reverses around the middle. And maybe that's why it has a tendency to reverse around the middle where you start, you know, you're always cheering for the hero or the heroine, but you know, you want to start getting something back. It's like watching your football team get the crap beat out of them every week, uh, week after week after week, which I know all about from being a Dolphins fan for the last <laughs> 30 years. <laughs> so I, I know I, I find that interesting. And I was wondering, do, do you think about anything like that? Do you think about when I'm going to re- reverse the flow of the crap storm? No, no, I don't. I never have because um, granted, I've up until this new series that I started, I've only ever written Monroe. And Monroe is very smart and very analytical. And so even when the crap keeps coming at her, it I don't think it ever feels like she can't handle it. And there's always this I, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree because in the doll, I thought there is no way out. Okay. Well, I did a good job then. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I don't, I don't because to me, it's not, okay. I'm backing up, you know, I've talked about this. I've talked about with my Patreon, uh, on the Patreon page with patrons, um, one of the books that I started writing but didn't finish, I think I've talked about it in the Newsy too, called Retribution, which is, um, it's not a thriller. It's the story of a small town single mother who has, um, the town turns against her because of some of some things that happen and they, they want to destroy her and destroy her life. And it, it's very, um, they use the full weight of the, the law and the, the mechanisms, child protective services, criminal justice system, to just take her sons away from her. 
and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I'm thinking about that story because that is as close to what you just described as it can get. And I don't know at what point in the book, pages wise, it stops and she decides to take matters into her own hands and and find retribution. But it, it very well could be right around the half halfway point of the book and won't know until I actually finish writing it. But um, there's definite, and I, I don't know if the term reversal is actually um, how I how I would view it. I see it almost more like a a natural place in a person's life where they basically say, you know, I'm sick of this and I'm not going to take it anymore, and they actually do something about it. And that's this particular story. It's not, you know, every story. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's midpoint. I don't know. And and that will be interesting to find out. And then as we're talking about this, I also realized that, you know, we're, we're primarily talking about, because both of our frames of reference here are the thriller genre. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder about things like, you know, space sagas or urban fantasy or romance. And, and that do these, do these same concepts apply where you can say, you know, that was the beginning and now here's the muddle. And because I would imagine that a, a space saga, especially one that covers, you know, 14, 15 books, it's almost like it, it never has a beginning and it never has an end. And the, the only thing I've ever read that I can reference this at all with is with the Dune series, because I have read quite a few books out of that series. And I've read the, the prequels and although the stories themselves sort of have a beginning and an end because they have to start and they have to finish, they're part of a larger story that seems to go on for thousands and tens of thousands of years. So this concept of a a three-act structure almost feels small or laughable in the face of the scope of a story that is so big. Well, that's interesting, and and let's. I I have not seen all the Star Wars movies. I don't know if you've seen any of the Star Wars movies, but I've most people some. are are familiar yeah. with them. And each of the movies, um, I I can't break them down, but I am absolutely certain that there is a beginning, a middle, and an end, and there is a you know a point of no return where, you know, Luke takes up something and decides he's going to go chasing after the bad guys. Um, you know, which would be taking it into the to the second act, and then there is an an activity that takes it into the third act, and then there's an ending. But there is this long saga of six films, and who knows when it will end. But there is this long saga that could span. I think there's like hundreds of books. Yes, in so that. it could it could go on forever. So I think it applies. I've seen it in in reading about this. I've seen it applied. It to romance novels and things like that, where just the you know the drama is something different. It's it's will they or won't they? Will sh- will she wind up with the guy or won't she wind up with the guy? And of course, if it's a romance, she will wind up with the guy. But as you move in, as you move from the middle to the end, and this is sort of the break point for this episode, there is something that makes it seem like it it is the the. You know, the darkness before the dawn. And if, if you read enough books or if you watch enough TV shows, you know that when it looks like there's absolutely no way out, that things are about to turn and you're getting close to the end. And so that's that's the technical break point between the middle 
and the end, and that in, in a romance can be it's over. There's no way this is going to work out. It is just over. And then somehow in the last 25%, 10%, whatever, whatever it happens to be, something reverses itself and they wind up together. In, in a romance. And huh. the same thing could happen in, you know, the, the private investigator could be beaten nearly, you know, beaten to a pulp and wind up in jail. And, you know, that's the point where it can't get much worse than this. And all of a sudden he's out and he's got a, he's got a great new idea and he's going off to uh, capture the bad guy. Huh. So that's, that's sort of the break, the technical break between the middle and the end. And we're going to get to the end with next next week's episode but we are at the end of this episode (laughs) (laughs) love how you do that it's awesome all right call to action if you remember a couple of weeks ago when taylor and i were recapping our trips taylor to new york me to key west i went on and on and on Seemingly endlessly when I actually listened, <laughs> listened to the interview and was trying to cut it down a little bit about this bookstore in Key West. I wound up interviewing the woman who runs the, the bookstore, Suzanne Orchard of Key West Island Books, on this most recent episode of The Author Biz. So if you found if, – if you weren't totally put off by my uh, – discussion of that bookstore and you want to learn a little bit about how bookstores work especially small independent bookstores and how they work with different types of authors it's sort of the flip side we get into sort of the flip side of the the show that taylor and i had done about doing author events where taylor talked from the author's perspective what you do suzanne talks for a bit about from the bookstore's perspective what they do so it's it's a fun episode if you think it would be interesting i will have a link in the show notes or you can just find it at theauthorbiz.com. So that's the call to action for this week, Taylor, unless you have something more specific, like buy my book. Is the book ready? Can we no. buy it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you can always buy one of the other ones if you want to. Give somebody a gift. All right. Next week, we will be back to talk about endings. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for being here, guys. <laughs>